Hello and welcome to another episode of the Spirit of 2016 podcast. Ian Barraclough has been appointed Northern Ireland manager and I'm Andy Bell. Reacting to that news today with me is Luke Niblock. Nib, how's it going? Yeah, it's going well. I'm very excited about the news. Uh, obviously, we touched on it last podcast. You know, Barraclough was certainly an option that we were, were quite happy with. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about the news big time, man. Yeah. Yeah, so coming up in the podcast, we've got interviews with Michael Clark, who was the under-21 uh, commentator. Uh, not He's not under-21 himself. He was a commentator for the under-21s for the BBC um, for the Euro 2019 qualifying campaign. And he's been talking to me a bit about the job Ian Barraclough did with Northern Ireland under-21s. And I've also got an interview with a Sligo Rovers supporter, Keith O'Dwyer, about the job Ian Barraclough did down at Sligo Rovers as well. So all that's coming up in the podcast but first, we're just going to do a bit of a reaction to this. And uh, Nib, on the last podcast where we discussed the, the calibre of the candidates, the three candidates, Stephen Robinson, Tommy Wright and Ian Barraclough. And we sort of came to the conclusion that whether it was Barraclough or whether it was um, was Robinson, we'd be happy enough with either of those two. It is Ian Barraclough. Are you happy enough? Yeah, no, I would definitely say so. For me, it was kind of a much of a muchness anyway. There was it was very close between the two of them. Obviously, I I went for Robinson in the end, and you kind of favoured Barraclough. And you know, the more I think about it now, the more I think it, it does make sense. I mean, that under twenty one connection is 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 vital for kind of you know going forward the future of the of the country's side. So, I think honestly, it's an appointment that makes a lot of sense. He seems like a really stand up guy from the interviews we've seen. He obviously knows Michael. He knows a lot of these guys in the squad well. I honestly do think it's the sensible appointment now that I look back at it. Yeah, completely agree. And I think that, you know, what, what everyone was saying, what we talked about in the previous podcast as well. And, you know, you guys can go back and, and listen to that one because we talked about the, the sort of managerial profile of the candidates. So we're not going to really go over old ground there. But uh, what we did say was it was all about continuity. It was continuing on what Michael O'Neill's done. Um, we're, you know, we're not stupid. We know there could be a bit of a, a teething period with this one, you know, after the incredible success that Michael O'Neill's had. But it was all about that continuity. And both Ian Barraclough and Stephen Robinson offered us that. And the IFA have obviously ultimately uh, chosen Ian Barraclough from the under-21s. I mean, I actually, I'm really just really excited for this. I mean, I thought when Michael O'Neill... Um, left Northern Ireland I thought you know I was feeling a bit down about it I thought you know for a couple of years I was worried that we might revert to the norm from what we've seen from Northern Ireland for a lot of our lifetimes but I mean Ian Barraclough is a young manager he's had success he's won things and um, he's gone down to Sligo and won them their only their third league title in their history which is just an incredible achievement um, and then obviously the job he's done with the under 21s beating Spain and um, getting 20 points finishing second I mean He's, he's just an outstanding candidate. I mean, how excited are you for that that first game? It's going to be brilliant because I think there will be a buzz about the place and I genuinely think people will get behind this guy. Like, you, you mentioned Slagger Rovers there. I, I, I From the start, I've kind of seen the parallels between Barraclough and Michael O'Neill. You know, obviously that's a big comparison and it's, you know, big shoes to fill coming in. But that Sligo job he did is, there, there are certainly parallels to that and the Shamrock Rovers job that, that Michael pulled off um, before joining us. So, I think it just has to be a, an element of patience from us. You know, the, the first couple of games, we're, we're going to talk about them a bit more depth, but in the Nations League, um, there just has to be a bit of patience there. You know, there were some people that weren't sure about the Michael appointment when it happened, and we all know how that turned out. So I think we just have to be a little bit patient and see what kind of style of play that, that, that you know, the Barclough can bring to this side. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and we sort of talked a little bit about the style of play on the last podcast and how we know, obviously, Ian Barraclough has brought in a progressive, a positive style of play 
uh, everywhere he's managed, basically. And when I was talking to uh, to Keith, the Sligo Rovers supporter, which will come up a bit later in this podcast, he was sort of saying, actually, you know, Ian Barraclough was quite a pragmatic manager. I mean, and the thing we need to sort of clarify here is people think pragmatic means defensive. It doesn't. Pragmatic means the, the quickest route to victory. Um, and he was talking about how, like, in big league deciders, um, against St. Pat's and in FAI Cup finals against Drogheda and stuff like that. He was always able to adapt his tactics and uh, and really get through that game. And he was talking about, because um, I think we mentioned in the last podcast as well, about how Sligo Rovers, the season before Ian Barraclough came in, they were only four points off being champions. So, you know, it wasn't like a, this was an absolute you know, Leicester City-esque shock. Uh, as much as you know, Barraclough deserves so much credit for eventually helping them push on. But what Keith was saying was... Um, the difference between the previous manager and Ian Barraclough was sort of, it was so exciting with the previous manager and, you know, games would end 3-2 and 4-3. But the difference that helped Sligo eventually go on to win the league was that Ian Barraclough knew how to take a point, knew when to take a point, knew, you know, how to just get over the line. And I think that's really encouraging because we've got two games, the playoffs, where I don't know about you, I could not care less how we play, how we do it as long as we win these two games. I mean, you know, let's not get it twisted. These two games coming up against Bosnia, and then if if we win that against either Slovakia or the Republic of Ireland, these are two of the biggest games in our history. And he's the chance to make himself an instant hero. Yeah, no, he does. He does. And I think, you know, you can, you can say instant hero, and there's a bit of pressure that comes with that. But the good thing about these two Nation League games coming up is that, you know, you do have a couple of sides here. Um you know, in Norway and Romania, Romania and Norway, actually, if you want to talk about the order of the games, but mm-hmm. two sides there that, you know, you'd say are on a, in a vaguely similar level to Northern Ireland. You know, these are two competitive games for us. We're in quite a tough nation in the group when you actually look at it. Um, and I think it's going to be a great test for him. You know, I don't think there's, we should put too much pressure on it, but just to see how he immediately kind of levels up against these sides, you know, how, how we compare to them right off the rip, you know, with a new manager. So, I'm, I'm buzzing. I'm, I'm really excited to see us in action again. Obviously, I always would have been no matter who was manager. But I think with Barraclough, there will be a feel-good factor around it. I do think that the, the kind of the squad will, will be pretty chuffed with that. I think there'll be good spirits going on in the camp um, pretty early on. So I'm just looking forward to it. I think you have to be optimistic. Yeah, so it's an 18-month contract as well, uh, which some people have kind of raised eyebrows at. It's not very often you see something like that, especially at the, the top level. Um, but what we have to realise is obviously a lot of these games are packed into, uh, you know, a really tight schedule. You know, we've got triple headers to make up for having missed out on the playoffs in in March, having missed out in playing those games. And um, you know, we've got three games again: you know, Romania, Norway, Bosnia, Austria, a potential playoff final, potential friendlies. I mean, it's essentially a a two year contract because what he's got is he's got the playoffs, he's got the Nations League, and he's got the World Cup twenty twenty two qualifying. So it's, you know, it's a case of that 18-month contract. It may seem short, but it actually does give him enough time. And I think maybe after World Cup 2022 qualifying, that's a, that's a good time to review the job he's done and see if we want to offer him uh, an extension on that contract. Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I think that'll be the approach from, the, from, you know, the powers above. You know, I think that it's, it's very much a kind of test of water, see what he does. It, it's, you're still putting your faith in him with 18 months, as you said. You know, these are... A lot of crucial games coming up. It's not like you know you're saying let's oh let's just see how he does you know in some friendlies or something like that. You know these are these are big matches coming up in a very tightly packed schedule as you say. I mean the first game we've got coming up is I think the fourth of September against Romania yeah. in the Nations League. So I mean that's I mean that's not that far at all when you think about it. You know from now and 
uh, from there on, it's just games after games after games, you know, when you go through October, November. So, you know, there's there's still a lot of faith being put in them there. I wouldn't even look at that and think, oh, they're tentative about the appointment. You know, I think it's uh, it's a lot of trust that's still going into Barclough's hands here, you know. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned those two Nations League games. I mean, just how important is it, is it for us to have those two games before the playoff? Like, we play we play Bosnia on the Thursday night of that October international break. Now, if that was the first game of the in Barclough tenure, you know, you've got uh, players playing uh, in England, in Scotland, potentially playing on the Sunday, going to take the Monday off, then, you know, in training on the Tuesday. I mean, Ian Barclough could have potentially only had two days to work with that squad before one of the biggest games, as I say, in our history. But now we've got that full international break. And, you know, what I always say is, like, not only do we have those two matches to help Barclough prepare for the playoff, and obviously that will be the main focus uh, of those two games, even though we do need to take the Nations League seriously. But not only is it two games, it's two games against similar level opposition, I would say. I mean, Romania and Norway are probably, well, it's hard to know how good Norway are now, because, you know, traditionally they would have been a half-decent uh, European nation qualified for the odd tournament, but... You know, they've now got this guy, Erling Haaland, up front, who's just scoring goals every week. So they could be a completely different proposition. And that could be actually quite a similar job in containing them and containing him, as we'll have against Bosnia with uh, Pjanic, who's just shown Barcelona, and Edin Dzeko. I mean, it's the level of those two games. You couldn't really pick two better games to prepare, could you? No, I mean, you really couldn't. And I think the thing with Ian is he'll definitely have his eye on a few players that he wants to bring through, you know, from the next generation anyway. And I think, honestly, the Nations League... You know, getting top, like you said, for a chance at a World Cup playoff, you know, that's that's a big ask. You know, w- at the end of the day, we got we got pretty short end of the straw in terms of um, the group we got. So it is a tough ask to get that. I think, you know, might look at this opportunity as, you know, let's bring some, you know, some youth through. Let's bring some of these guys that I've worked well with and I know can offer a lot to the squad. Let's bring these guys in. Let's get them playing, you know, regular, you know, 60 to 90 minutes in these games and mm-hmm. see how they, how they manage. You know, I think it's a great opportunity to do that because at the end of the day, we're now moving into a new era. You know, there's no more, you know, looking behind us. Now it's, it's a new era. It's going to be a fresh new look at the whole um, the way this team plays. And I think Ian will look at it as an opportunity to bring some guys through as much as anything else. Obviously, it's going to be taken seriously. So he'll mix the, you know, the youth with the, what we already have in terms of experience. And he'll just see who's fit, who's available, you know, because at the end of the day, it's, it's a pretty bizarre situation in the footballing world at the minute. And, you know, you don't know what's going to happen between now and September. So um, I would just say, yeah, it's an opportunity to bring through some other players that might not have got, you know, the 90 minutes that they would have been looking for before under Michael. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Spot on there. Couldn't have said it better myself. And, you know, that's that's going to be a real a real tricky thing for Ian Barclough to, to sort of balance. Obviously, there's not really international friendlies anymore. That's all been replaced by the Nations League. So, you know, where do you bring, where do you take a risk on a young player? Where do you maybe throw Mark Sykes into a game or, you know, you know Gavin White give him some games rather than, you know, playing your absolute best team? And that's just going to be quite tricky for Barclough to balance that because, you know, we do need to take that those games seriously because, we you know, being, in, being in, a, in a high position in the Nations League ultimately does give you much better chance for playoffs if, as can happen, you get drawn in a group with Holland and Germany, Germany being the pot two team, you know, if you get yeah. a group of death like that. So... Uh, how, just quickly before we uh, go on to the interviews, how how how, do you, how would you approach that if you were in Barraclough? Yeah, like I said, I would just I would look at these games um, definitely as an opportunity to bring some players through, um, and it's just about I think just setting the system up. You know, we're going to start. This is the first chance for us as fans to see what he's going to be working on in the training ground, and 
I think it's a chance for him to stamp his philosophy on the team. Even if you go to Romania and, you know, you draw that game, you know, and maybe you, you draw Norway as well, or maybe you might just edge Norway. Who knows? I mean, I'm looking at those games with a very open mind myself. So it's just about how can you kind of stamp your philosophy on this team? You know, how can you integrate some players that, you know, were on kind of the, the sidelines a little bit or on the cusp of getting into the side? And um, how positive can we be, you know, as a fan base looking into this? You know, I think that's what I'm going to be looking at in these games. I'm not thinking, you know, if we lose 1-0 to Norway, we lose, you know, 1-0 to Romania in one of these games, you know, that it's just a big disaster. You know, I think it's early stages and you just have to be behind them. Yeah, completely agree. Okay, I'm going to go on to part two of the podcast, which was an interview with Sligar Rovers supporter and ex-club secretary, Keith O'Dwyer. Okay, delighted now to be joined by Sligar Rovers supporter Keith O'Dwyer. Uh, Keith, thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me on, Andy. No worries at all. Um, so you actually uh, were ex-secretary at Sligar Rovers, so you actually worked with Ian Barclough quite closely, uh, I think in his first year, year and a half of his tenure as Sligar Rovers manager. Um, I just wanted to know, what's he sort of like on a, on a personal level and as a guy to work with? Yeah, um, I was very fortunate. Um, in 2012, I was the club promotions officer and also the club secretary for Sligo Rovers and indeed was involved. Uh, I was there on the night in the management committee when the decision came for us to appoint a new manager. Uh, our previous manager, Paul Cook, had left to uh, return home back to England to his uh, joint Akron and Stanley. Of course, he's gone on to do great things now as well, Wigan yes, Athletic. Yeah, of course. Um, and Ian was one of the candidates. He'd been contacted by a man from Fermanagh, believe it or not, Andy, Jerry Cassidy, but there's a huge amount of scout work for Sligo Rovers in different clubs. And Jerry Cassidy had helped bring Paul Cook to Sligo Rovers, but he'd also contacted Ian Barraclough after his um, spell with Scunthorpe United to see mm-hmm. if he'd be interested in applying for the Sligo Rovers job. So it was him. It was Dave Penny who's to manage Doncaster Rovers. Uh, there was Paul Cook's pre- assistant, Jerry Carr, and it was William McStay, former Celtic Kilmarnock player. And he'd, he'd managed Sligo Rovers in the 90s and won the FAI Cup. Um, but Ian's approach... Uh, the way he the, he'd researched League of Ireland, he came over to watch a couple of our preseason friendlies ahead of his interview, uh, impressed everyone on the board, and we felt that he was the best candidate to kind of take the club forward as a whole. He came in, Andy. People forget he only came in a few days before the start of the 2012 season. He was okay. really pitched into it. Uh, he had no chance to kind of sign players or anything like that. The squad signing was done; it had been done by Paul Cook, but. What impressed me from the off uh, with him was he was a, a proper gentleman, very respectful of, of everyone at the club at Sligo Rovers. Sligo Rovers is a, very much a community-based and voluntary-run club. So you're talking, even though you're a business of a 1.2 million turnover, you've got probably about two and a half full-time employees, Andy. But yeah. he, he treated everyone the same. And what impressed me, I worked very close to him day to day, my role as club secretary, but also in role as club promotion, uh, club promotions officer, and he understood that the community ethos was key to a club like Sligo Rovers. He was very accommodating and making himself available to go out into the public and, and meet groups in Sligo, but also ensuring that the players were there, were on hand as well. But at a personal level, it couldn't have been a nicer guy. Uh, incredibly um, respectful, really easy to get on with, uh, took a real interest in, in everyone around the club and wanted to find out more about them. And, it, and the thing with a club like Sligo, uh, no matter how hard we tried, Andy, it's an open door. You know, people in terms, terms coming up to the ground and walking around or asking questions. And because Sligo's not the biggest town, I'd say Ian would be questioned everywhere he went about former at the club or former players. But he always had time for everyone. And that came true. Um, what impressed me, Paul Cook was a, 
brilliant manager with probably a little bit of organised chaos, uh, but because of his sheer strength of personality and the way it went to the players' work, Ian's attention to detail. Ian came in. I can remember when he got a, uh, when he first uh, came into the office. He had a folder in every club, Andy, in the league. Okay. He got <laughs> he got video highlights uh, of every club in the league, and he'd done he'd already done analysis pieces and researches, and he only added to that folder as the season went on. Uh, he made use of every contact he had to get, uh, you know, DVDs of our opposition, um, you know, so he could highlight their set pieces, work on mini clips for players, what they need to watch out for, things for that. And he had a real pragmatic sense to management. Uh, what I thought, well, Paul Cook, and it was brilliant, it was great for supporters, and they were kind of spoiled. It was always do or die. We would either go out and win 3 2, or we would go out and lose 3 2. Mm-hmm. With Ian Barclough, and it's probably the key thing why we won the league, he knew when to take a point. You know, he knew when sometimes you're better off to take that point on the road and come back and then, you know, look to build on your home form. And that was key to winning this league. And even when we played in Europe, I think he was the first manager we ever had that actually went uh, to watch our opposition in Europe play. You know, it wasn't something we kind of done before. Yeah. You, you know, you'd always rely on the fly. And he seemed to have a good network of scouts. Was we He hired a scout for us in the UK that would go watch uh, clubs playing. Like, he knew our market was pretty much down uh, the National League downwards, that that's where you're going to get lads who are on the bubble are going to be released. Yeah, and, and that's, he was watching scouting players the whole time. And he brought in Seamus Keneally in the July of the 2012 season. And Seamus Keneally has gone back on since with Akron and Stanley. He won League Two with them and he's got a new two and a half year deal. Um, so, I mean, he was watching players the whole time, trying to see who would fit. But his man management skills was great. He came in, he had two extremely enigmatic talents and there's there's talents like that at every level. Joseph Endo and Mark Quigley. Mark Quigley wanted to leave Sligo a few months into it. He couldn't settle. Uh, he, he was too far from Dublin for him. Um, he was throwing pretty much all his toys out of the pram. Ian put his arm around him, uh, worked out a thing where he could, could come down to Sligo, train two, three days a week and play. Mark Quigley ended up being a huge part of us winning the league and winning player of the year. And I was eternally grateful to, to Ian for convincing him to stay. Uh, with Joseph Endo, who's pure mercurial talent, but Joseph Endo has uh, no, no respect of time. If you have to be there for six o'clock, Joseph Endo will turn up at 20 past six. Just the way it is, Andy, you know. Yeah. But again, Ian, Ian managed that. Ian handled him and Ian got an incredible amount uh, out of him as well. So I like I found his man management skills great. I found his the way he could relate to people incredibly well. And like, you know, after a few weeks, it's like, oh, he felt like he'd been there a while. And that was kind of a good thing. He knew people's name. He was he knew things about people and he was very, very prepared and he used every contact and resource that he had to hand to help him through that first season with us. When we, you know, we won the league, he bridged the 44 year gap. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's interesting what you say there about sort of how he uh, how he managed the the uh, those uh, sort of mercurial talents and those big personalities. Because of course, that's something that's going to be going to be massive at international level. You're going to have sort of more egos and stuff like that. I mean, in those first two years as Sligo Rovers boss, just like sum up how, how good was that to be a Sligo Rovers supporter? I mean, when I think it was only the third league title in your history. And to pick up the FAA Cup as well, like just how how fun was that? I guess just to be a supporter at that time, incredibly fun. But because uh, you know we we gone through long periods of struggle. Like yes, it only like only our the third league title in our history. Trophy. We won as much trophies in the period between Paul Cook and Ian Barclough as we had in nearly the eighty years preceding it. Okay. So so it was the it was the best of times. Kind of spoiled 
everything for every manager that's come since Andy because they pine for the days of Cook and Barraclough. Um, but like, yeah, winning the league wasn't inc- incredible. Like people will, any supporter you meet now, like previous supporters would have memories of the, the league team that won in 77, 78. And that was Billy Sinclair, you know, um, who, who took us to that. I think he was involved for many years at Ballymena United. Really, really uh, you know, good manager. He bought, you know, he bought lads down from Alan, Northern Ireland, like Alan Patterson and different people like that mm-hmm. to come in and play for us. And that made a huge difference. You had Paul McGee, you know, went on to play QPR in Ireland as well. But the previous generation supporters clung to that through the bad old days. This gave a new generation supporters something to look to. And it just, it was even the fashion, the way it was won. When we came to a league decider against St. Patrick Athletic in the showgrounds. We were 2 0 up at half time. They got it back to 2-2. We got a penalty with eight minutes to go. Mark Quigley scored it. We won 3-2. You know, just it's incredible for Ian. And then the, even the year after, we were still up challenging for the league with St. Patrick's Athletic and Dundalk. You had a good cup run then as well. And that cup final, like, to be fair to Ian, he, he, he doesn't do dramatic one-off games by half. You know, playing Drogheda United, we were 1-0 down. Then we were 2-1 up. Then they got it back 2-2. And then we scored a winner five minutes into stoppage time as well to win 3-2. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it, it's, it was incredible. It, it was great. And it's it, it kind of happens, supporters. You get very, very spoilt. You get a taste of it. You demand more. But I think really probably with a club like Sligo Rovers, with our resources, with the Sligo, size of Sligo Town and our geographic location, we probably peaked, Andy. You know, mm-hmm. and then it's, it's like, what is your plateau after that? And can people accept your plateau after that. We were very fortunate. It was a real mixture and alchemy of things that, that came together for us. Like Paul Cook had been sacked by Southport. Nobody was really going to touch him. He brought in lads who clubs had given up on, said the difficult attitude. Ian Barclough had been sacked by Scunthorpe. People weren't really you know, looking at him either. He was able to come in too. We were very lucky. And you know, you still pine for it, but I think very fortunate to be a part of it and to experience of it. And the football was great as well. Mm-hmm. You're, you're worrying a bit about there, Keith, because like you're talking about these last minute winners and league deciders and stuff. And I just don't know if my heart can take that for a potential playoff, you know. <laughs> your, your, your heart, Jesus, my heart a couple of years to get over too, as well. Like, you know, especially working with the club and being that close. And because I'd never thought, Andy, I'd see us win the league. And then when it happens, like, it was very overwhelming. And, Ian used to have a good slag with me. Uh, I, I loved the FAI Cup. And one of my roles was I got to manage uh, to mind it, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So I'm bringing it out to schools and things like that. We'd won it in 2010. We'd won it in 2011. We lost then in against Monaghan United, who went defunct a, year, a, a week after they beat us in the FAI Cup. And I did sulk with Ian. I told him, I said, you know, you've lost me my cup. And he said, well, look, I promise you, I'll win you a bigger one. And he did. So you can't. <laughs> yeah. He's a man of his word. Yeah. Incredible. Um, well, I mean, on this podcast, we did um, a podcast a couple of weeks ago about the three main candidates for the job, which was Stephen Robinson at Motherwell, uh, Tommy Wright, who's just left St. Johnston, and of course, Ian Barraclough as well. And I was quite strongly pro Barraclough and pro Robinson. Um, so I just want to be as sort of balanced as possible and just ask you a couple of questions. Um, because obviously I saw you guys won the, your first league title or your, uh, your third league title in your history. Um, and obviously Sligo Rovers, as you say, you know, it's a it, it's 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 not a club that you know wins things is used to dominating uh, the league of Ireland or or Irish football in general. So you know when I saw that, I sort of thought you know that's that's an absolutely incredible achievement. How has he managed to do that? And then as I did a bit more digging, I sort of saw obviously you say 
Paul Cook left uh, a very strong squad. Yeah. I mean, how much of that? Uh, that I think uh, it was twenty twelve, wasn't it? The league winning season. So his first year. Twenty twelve was the league winning season. It was his first mm-hmm. year. I I I think, and I think it's it could be you know something of comfort to supporters of Northern Ireland. Like Paul Cook, you know he he left he left a good engine at Ian Barrett's mm-hmm. managed to keep it running. Okay. And I think Michael O'Neill has done was something similar in that. I think even though we've all been very impressed with the job that Michael O'Neill did uh, with Northern Ireland, but like you know down here, anyone who followed the SSE or Tristy Lee knew how um, a quality a manager Michael O'Neill was. Mm-hmm. And I think when Ian Bartloff come in and the fact that he's familiar with the setup from his job at the under twenty ones, he'll keep that engine running and mm-hmm. he'll keep it running well. But you know. People, yeah, that was thrown at him a lot down here, and you know, and I think he's get very frustrated that it was Paul Cook's team. But yeah. Paul, yeah, Paul Cook would say himself that as soon as he leave left, it's not his team; mm-hmm. it's in Barraclough's side. And we hadn't won the league under Paul Cook. By God, we had some exciting football. We had some unbelievable players like Paul Gammond, who still play with Newport County. Owen Doyle has just won League Two with Swindon. You know, Richie Ryan, a real quality midfielder, who's still playing over in the uh, USL in the States, lads like that. It was incredibly exciting. But I think we needed that bit of pragmatism that Ian Bartloff got to bring us over the line. And I think the majority of supporters accept and realise that, that we won the league because we had the right manager in charge. But without question, Andy, he was left the right tools to work with. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And I mean, it's I guess it's sort of similar. I mean, I'm a, I'm a massive Liverpool fan and people always say about Rafael Benitez in Istanbul 2005 and always accuse him of, you know, having done it with Julier's team. And I suppose, yeah. you know, if you if you I guess if you come in and make such a such a massive impact, you're always going to you're always going to have those those people here who are trying to track from it and who are jealous of it, I suppose. And it's, you mentioned- it's funny. Yeah. No one ever says Roberto Di Matteo won the Champions League with Andrew Villapolis' side. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's kind of left out, you know. I suppose so. Yeah, no, that's right. And you, you sort of mentioned there, which I find quite interesting, the the pragmatism of Ian Barraclough. You know, go, going away to maybe uh, teams near the top of the league and, and taking a point and just keeping yes. keeping that ticking. And, and maybe that's um, that was sort of the difference between uh, Paul Cook and Ian Barraclough that got you guys over the line. And, We've actually seen that a lot with Michael O'Neill. I'm not sure if it was uh, similar to how he managed Shamrock Rovers in the Artricity League, but you know, just to take this last campaign for Northern Ireland uh, into consideration for a second, um, and I mentioned this in, in my last interview with a with a journalist, so I risk it sounding like a bit of a broken record, but you know, we saw we played Germany at home um, and put in this massive energetic pressing, uh, high energy display. It uh, didn't give them any time in the ball, and it was really positive and really attacking, and then. Sort of a couple of games later, we went away to Holland and it was as, I guess, as defensive and negative a performance as you can imagine. But, you know, it turns out we, we went 1-0 up after 75 minutes and, you know, the tactics, you have to say, were spot on. But what I'm sort of trying to establish is, does, does Ian Barraclough, I guess he doesn't really have his set philosophy that he sticks to, like the likes of Pep Guardiola does? Is he more of like a tactical, pragmatic manager who can switch it up based on uh, the yes. opponent? Yes, I I very much uh, be at that line that he he he's very pragmatic in the approach that he takes to different teams. Like he knows there's some teams, especially when you're in the Artistic League, that you're going to go away and that you you know you're 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 expected to win and you have to win. Like I would say, Dandy, to be fair to him, he's never set out his stall for a point, but he sure as hell knew when to settle for it. That might mm-hmm. be the the best way to put it. But yeah, no. You know, very cute sometimes in some of his selections. Uh, we we kind of played his system with us that worked very well. It was kind of a four four one one. He gave Mark Quigley a free roll in behind the striker. 
Uh, didn't really expect him to track back or anything like that too much. Knew that Quigley would be there as an attacking outlet the whole time to kind of feed the ball forward. And another lad, Danny North, who played up front, and he could switch Quigley and North kind of interchangeable as well. Very keen at all times to kind of use the full backs. It's a tr- kind of a tradition. It's like Rovers of attacking full backs. Ian Barclough kind of kept that going as well. And then kind of steely holding midfielders. Like we had a lad, Danny Ventry, and then Seamus Keneally. They would kind of sit in, in front of our back four and protect them. But I said, like any manager, he built from the back up. You know, you're building your solid defence, but not afraid to nurture and allow flair players to kind of express their their talent as well. And I think, you know, supporters need to see that bit of flair. Like it, it was hard, I think, at times for some of our own supporters to see, to, to realise that, you know, with 20 minutes to go, a game was nil-nil. We might say, right, we're going to hang on and take this point. Whereas Paul Cook would be like, I'm going to go and win this game. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that could be the difference between winning the league and not winning the league. Mm-hmm. OK. And just, uh, you know, just talk quickly about the third season. Obviously, it, it did turn slightly sour. Um, he was he was sacked, I think, with, uh, I think he was 17 points off the top of the league. Although he did actually pick up the Satanta Cup, so he did sort of win something in every season. Um, he did. He's, he's our of... most successful manager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, like, what what sort of went wrong for you in that third season for Ian Barclough? If you take Ian's first season as an alchemy of everything that went right, his mm-hmm. third season was an alchemy of everything that probably went wrong. Okay. There was a lot of changes kind of off the pitch at board level and things like as well. Um, you know, probably he, I, I like it's it's touchy still uh, for a lot of people. I, I, my own view is I don't think he probably got the support that he should have got going into that third season based on the success that he had in the first uh, couple of years. Supporters were kind of beginning to sour a little bit on his on his football but it was only like anything it was a, a, a vocal minority as opposed to the to the majority but again it was being we were picking up results but Dundalk had become an unstoppable force under Stephen yeah. Kenny and, and we we had dropped off the pace but even at Ian's worse we still win the Satanta Sports Cup was the which was the first time in the club's history that we'd won a cross-border competition. And Andy, I have to say, and with this being an ordinary football podcast, we're still the reigning Satanta Cup champions. Yeah, it's been taken off, hasn't it, right now? Yeah, I saw that. Yes. <laughs> and and if if imagine you could have a rematch if it is the playoff between the North and the Republic. <laughs> yeah, you know, that is the 2014 kind of rematch on it. But even that day, they were torrential conditions in Talat. Like the rain, the game probably should have been called off. But he mm-hmm. adapted his side, you know, to win that game against a cracking Dundalk team. He will feel that he didn't get probably get the budget or he needed in terms of players. The board probably feel that he was maybe a bit conservative in some of the players, into maybe taking too long to sign players. But we still managed in that year. We brought in David McMillan, who was a, who was a quality striker. And he didn't really fit our system because he wasn't playing up front. He was playing on the wing. But he went on to achieve great things with Dundalk. And then he went over to Simon St. Johnston with Sean Maguire who's you know, now a full international in yeah, the Republic and with yeah. Preston North End as well. He had been struggling over with West Ham. He came in alone. Like, he worked hard. He did really well. And his performances with Sligo Rovers got him a loan move at Akron and Stanley, which ended up in him signing for Dundalk and kind of helped get his career back on track. And he had injuries, uh, just injuries that were working against him. Gavin Pearce, our influential centre half, he did his crucial ligament in the FAI Cup final win uh, against Drogheda United, so he was out for the season. Rafael Cotero, who was kind of a heartbeat for our team, he was struggling for form. He was injured as well. And with a club like Sligo Rovers, 
you can probably afford one or two injuries, but if you've three or four key players who are out injured, you're in big trouble. We just didn't have the depth in the squad. Mm-hmm. And there was one or two players, and you know, like Ian was probably going to be, you know, get them a little bit of leash, but probably successed a couple of years had gone to their head and there was a bit of complacency in it. Yeah. He still, to, from my right, and I think a lot of supporters feel the same way, he'd earned the right to see out the season. No, mm-hmm. The way that season played out, it would have still played out the same with Ian. We beat Banga in the Europa League qualifier and got bet against Rosenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would have still happened with Ian Bartloff in charge. We ended up falling down mid-table. I don't think we would have finished this far off the pace under Ian Bartloff. I think the timing and everything was wrong. It was during the mid-term break. He wasn't even given the chance with the, the transfer window. You know, it was um, it left a bad taste with a lot of people in Sligo because he left us nothing but good memories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were very proud of our association with him. But it's it's football. People were were spoiled by the football under Paul Cook, spoiled by the success we got with Paul and then with Ian, and then couldn't accept them we were when we were probably dropping back to our natural level. And if you look at Sligo over since then, Andy, we are now either you know, the last few seasons either battling relegation or being lower mid table. And and okay. that's that's the way it's been. We we have tailed back off to probably where we are resource wise. We, we spectacularly overachieved and it was hard for people to accept when that was coming to an end. But he still won a trophy. He still won the Satanta Sports Cup. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's still a great achievement. Three three seasons, well, two and a half seasons, three trophies. That's not bad. Yeah, absolutely. And just, just to wrap this up, I mean, obviously, you know, if it is a playoff um, between, a playoff final between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, um, Having worked with Ian Barclough and having uh, Ian Barclough having brought such success to Sligo Rovers, if Northern Ireland were to beat you guys, would that soften the blow or not really? If Northern Ireland were to beat us, the only softener would be the fact, yes, that it was Ian Barclough. Yeah. It'd be a, it'd be a fascinating encounter though because Stephen Kenny knows Ian Barclough well. Ian Barclough knows Stephen Kenny well, and neither manager has had a lot of time to work with their respective squads. Yeah, you know, both both did great jobs with their under twenty ones though. Stephen Kenny. You know, turned around the fortune of the Republic of Ireland twenty ones, and Ian Barclough would be doing the same with the Northern Ireland ones, yeah, like yeah. hugely. And they they're bringing through young lads into their squads. It would be a fascinating uh, encounter. Like it would actually be, it, it wouldn't be very very hard to call. Like um, where if it was even, I think it would have been the same even if it was the clash of the O'Neills, Michael and uh, Martin as well. Mm-hmm. Although by God, Martin would have bored everyone to tears. You know, his <laughs> football like. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you talk about pragmatism, there's taking it to an extra level. And, <laughs> but it, it's it's great, I think, Andy, that, you know, and for football fans on both sides of the border, a new manager brings with a, a sense of optimism. Down here, everyone's really looking to see Stephen Kenny take charge of Ireland because we've seen the job of the, they were done, Doc. We've seen the football the inner 21s were playing. There are actually some exciting young players coming through. I think for the supporters of the North, it's the same. Like Ian Barclough's done a really, really good job. He will continue on what Michael O'Neill did, which was incredible. Like I, Mike, Michael O'Neill's achievements it probably didn't get enough recognition for even with Shamrock Rovers when he took them to the group stages of the Europa League. Yeah. And what he did with Northern Ireland as well, getting to the last 16 in the Euros. Like, you know, um, unbelievable stuff. And a great manager. I think he'll do well with Stoke. But I also think Andy Dean Barclough's going to do very well with Northern Ireland. And I think in a couple of years' time, you know, supporters will look back and go, this is a great choice. Mm-hmm. Okay, Keith O'Dwyer, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. No problem at all, Andy. Thanks for having me. 
Hello there, just a quick wee interjection in between these two interviews to let you know that I was in touch this week with a guy called David Alcorn, who's a primary school teacher at Temple Patrick Primary, teaches P7, uh, and basically he was out for a lockdown cycle one day, and he was passing by one of his pupils' houses, and the family basically challenged him to to cycle around all the people's houses during lockdown, which he was up for until he realised it was a 70 mile round trip and he hadn't been on a bike for 10 years. So <laughs> he had to do a little bit of training for that one. Uh, but he turned it into sort of like a, a sponsored cycle where he was raising money for NHS charities. And so far they've raised £6,274, which is just absolutely incredible. So massive, massive kudos to you, David. Um, that just given page is actually still alive, still taking donations. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put that in the bio of this podcast, going to put it out in the Facebook and the Twitter as well. Um, and if you've any problem accessing that, just give me a message or give David a message uh, and we'll be happy to help you out. So if you can just pause this, pause this podcast for a second, if you have a few seconds free uh, and give a donation to the, the great cause that, that David's working for there. Uh, if you can't pause the podcast if you're driving or whatever, um, then I'll give you a wee reminder at the end if that's something you want to do uh, and you can do that afterwards. But yeah, absolutely great cause. Um, great to see some of the, the guys involved with the IFA get involved, Josh McGuinness, Stephen Robinson, Paddy McNair and the like. Um, and just, just absolutely fantastic. Very proud. And you should be very proud, David. So um, just put that in there. Uh, and if you want to go and donate, you can do that. That'll be very easy if you see the bio of this podcast. So uh, just on to our next interview now, which is with Michael Clark, journalist and commentator for the BBC. And he's been talking to me for about 20 minutes about Ian Barraclough's role as under-21 manager with Northern Ireland. Delighted now to be joined by local journalist and commentator Michael Clark uh, to talk about Ian Barraclough's three years with the Northern Ireland under-21s. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. No problem at all. Happy to be here. So you started really commentating for the BBC uh, for the Euro 2019 qualifying campaign. I mean, it was a pretty good time to start, wasn't it? A pretty good time for them to give you that role. And um, just talk me through how good that uh, that campaign was for the under-21s. Well, I mean, I suppose my my commentary for the BBC goes back to 2010. But yeah, to, to get an opportunity to work on uh, the under-21s tournament was fantastic because I knew right from the off we were looking at the, the future of Northern Irish football and quite a lot of these players were going to hopefully make it through to the senior side at some time and you know get that call up from Michael O'Neill so you know as a football fan let alone as a football commentator I just wanted to see what the next crop of talented players were going to be like um, and really what had happened is that the BBC um, I, I guess it looked at a couple of the early results and thought well I wonder can we show some of these games here because they got off to you know a decent start Northern Ireland one away in Estonia with a Liam Donnelly penalty in the 94th minute, fairly dramatic way to get things going, and then um, bounced you know, off of that with another win, and that was against Albania, and another Liam Donnelly penalty, this time in the 95th minute. So things were starting to look good, and I think they thought, well, they've got off to a brilliant uh, start to this campaign. I wonder, can we follow them? So um, by the time the next home game came around, we'd been beaten by Slovakia, but then uh, we'd radio coverage for the game against Estonia, which they won 4-2, and it all it all basically kicked off from there, you know. Um, they were in form that was unheard of for a Northern Ireland side, and, and by then everyone was starting to talk about them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just had a look at sort of the last decade for the, the under-21s, and you're looking at, you know, second, bottom, bottom of the group, two points, three points, wins only against the likes of San Marino and Faroe Islands, if at that. And then you're talking yeah. about a, a team who's gone from that to 20 points. I mean, I think 
uh, we were a bit unlucky not to get a playoff. I think it was one of those scenarios where it was like the best three or four second place teams. Yeah. Uh, and we missed out on that by, by one or two points. But like, I remember, uh, obviously, when you guys started uh, covering the games, I remember watching a couple of them, specifically the Spain matches. And I know, obviously, we're going to go on to talk about uh, the 2-1 win away in Spain. I think we're still the only under-21 side to win in Spain in the last decade. But even like the, the game at home against Spain, I mean, we give them a right run for their money there. And it's just, you know, Spain under-21s absolutely dominate and they have done, you know, for, for the last decade or so. And you just look at that side and, you know, players stand out. Like Mayoral has had, had games for Real Madrid. Pablo Fornal is playing for, for West Ham in the Premier League. I think their captain was capped for Valencia 50 times um, by that stage. I mean, just put into context, how big was that result in Spain? Uh, for Northern Ireland, oh, I mean, it was it was massive, and they were hugely buoyed by that game at Shamrock Park, where they lost five three, and you know on that night, Borja Mayoral got a hat trick, Mikel Yarsabal got two, Danny Ceballos was playing, Adama Traore uh, was there. You know this this Spain team were incredible, and I know you sort of expect them to be. But when you look down the list of players and you go, Adama Traore was a substitute who only got on for the last 15 over here. Mm-hmm. Um, the left back that was playing on the night had been marking Lionel Messi a couple of weeks ago and now he was marking Gavin White. Um, <laughs> that is the that is the calibre of player. And for Northern Ireland to score three at home against them, um, we were starting to think, all right, OK, that's... That things are, you know, going quite well here. What can we do? But nobody, let's be honest, nobody believed that Northern Ireland could go to Spain and win. And I've been speaking to a lot of those players recently. Um, I spoke to Gavin White, spoke to Bobby Burns, spoke to Liam Donnelly, and they all said the same thing to me, which was in the build-up to the game in Spain. Um, Ian Barraclough was saying, "Look, we're going to win. We're we're going to beat Spain. We should, we we could have beaten them at home. No one gave us a chance." They were brilliant, but they're not going to expect us to come at them in Spain. So we're going to set up slightly differently. We're going to go for the jugular. And, I mean, <laughs> they got off to a dream start. Shane Lavery scores an absolute wonder goal yeah. um, inside five minutes. And from there, Bobby Burns has said, oh, I thought he'd taken a bit of a heavy touch initially, but Shane Lavery's <laughs> so fast, you don't know what a heavy touch is. Yeah. And he raced onto it and lashed it past the keeper. It was a glorious goal. And then... A few minutes later, they get a penalty and they score again. And I think, you know, Spain were completely reeling. And it was the 92nd minute that Spain clawed one back. The the 2-1 is almost um, a wee bit harsh in Northern Ireland. The Spanish press were so glowing about our performance. And um, the the funny thing about that was Northern Ireland, the senior side, were playing that night. um, Mm -hmm. And Gavin White was, you know, going to come on and score uh, that goal that he did. Before the senior team were playing, it's the only time I can ever remember being in Windsor Park and everyone going, but how are the under-21s doing? Yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> I remember actually it was, it was announced at halftime and it was just, we were in the cop that night, I think it was the Israel at Home friendly, and we were in the cop that night and just there was like a massive cheer went up, everyone was just completely shocked, you know. <laughs> well, people who didn't know, because I, th- I, think, I think the under-21 result was uh, slightly earlier that day, but... I mean, it was like I remember watching that that game against uh, the home game against Spain. I didn't get, I didn't catch the, the full away game, and I think you know Spain went one nil, two one, and three two up, and it was just the character of the side to to keep coming back. You know, every time I 
Spain put a goal in, I sort of thought, okay, that'll be us now, you know, put up a good fight. But, you know, what, what Ian Barraclough must have done to inspire those players to keep coming back and believe in themselves against such a successful side. I mean, we've, uh, we've a lot of young players coming through right now. We've seen a lot of, uh, of the players like Jamal Lewis and Billy Peacock-Farrell who have really established themselves uh, as starters for the senior squad. And then we've seen some other players like, like Gavin White who are regularly in the squad and regularly getting games. Um, and they've sort of come through uh, while Ian Barraclough's been under-21's manager. So I guess what I'm trying to establish here is, um, was that down to just their ability? Were they you know, such good talents that they were always going to come through to the senior squad? Sorry, Or how much does Ian Barraclough, how much credit does Ian Barraclough deserve for sort of moulding them internationally for you? It's a great question. I think there has to be a mix of both because if you're not good enough, you don't you don't succeed. You know, full stop. Because any, you know you can give anybody a chance, but um, you have to take it. So it, it was a mix. the The thing that struck me about the you know that campaign in particular was the twenty points mark was just ridiculous. You know, no one was expecting us to hit that. Yeah, yeah. What's what struck me is the versatility required within the squad because you were getting players being called up. So. You couldn't always pick your best team, and any any uh, youth manager at any level to, that works to a senior manager will know what that is like. Where you go, oh, he's taken my best player this week, and there were times where the likes of Paul White or or, or, or sorry, Paul Smith or Gavin White weren't available, mm-hmm. and um, arguably that actually held this team back from doing even better. Um, the, the sort of stalemate against Iceland struck me as one of those games. Where you're thinking. We just need someone that can score for us, and we're missing one or two. But I think three goalkeepers were used in that tournament. Definitely Hazard, Mitchell, and Peacock, Farrow. So I think it was a mix of having a really good generation of players, um, brilliant scouting uh, to be able to identify um, some lads that had Northern Irish connections, but also um, homegrown talent as well. And a, a good working relationship between Ian Barclough and Michael O'Neill to allow that sort of progression. Um, one knew what the other was after. So the performances on the pitch merited the, the call-ups and, and good performances then with the senior squad resulted in those players, you know, by and large, staying where they are. But um, Ian Barclough definitely has had a big impact um, on each of them and I think anyone that you speak to that's played under him says he's, a, he's actually quite a relaxed guy um, okay. in terms of how he sets up but he's incredibly structured and because um, th- everyone let's be honest everyone this week has been saying oh Robinson Barraclough Robinson Barraclough that was very much the narrative wasn't it coming into the IFA's choice yeah, yeah and um, we know obviously the other candidates in there and it was a very strong pull so that isn't to discredit anybody else but um from speaking to Liam Donnelly just on Friday, he was saying to me that actually Robinson and Barraclough are very similar managers. It's probably just a personality difference mm-hmm. is, is all he could really split them by. He said that um, Barraclough was maybe the slightly more laid back of the two, but that was a personality thing and not necessarily reflective of what happens during a game. But, you know, he, he could see real parallels between the both of them, which I guess is why both of them, we're seen as the IFA's sort of front runners. Yeah, okay, very interesting. Of course, the sort of continuity that they they both brought as well, I guess, um, set them apart from the rest of the candidates. In terms mm-hmm. of like the, uh, the the style of play, obviously, you know, as Northern Ireland fans, we know we can't play glowing tick attack of football all the time. You know, because if you do that against some of the top nations, you're going to get absolutely hammered. But you know, we do like to see our our team play good football when possible. Um, 
I guess what what I want to know sort of is obviously having watched um, Northern Ireland over the last nine years under Michael O'Neill, he was very much like a tactical manager, switched up the tactics game on game. You know, Germany at home, we saw that uh, massive energetic press um, mm-hmm. that was so successful. And then a couple of games later, we went away to Holland and pretty much, you know, two, two backs of five, I guess it was. You know, it was a really defensive performance, but, but both uh, sort of worked in their own way. Um, is Ian Barclough more of a man who has a sort of set philosophy and a way of playing football, kind of like the way... I don't know, like Pep Guardiola does, or is he more of a tactical manager? Well, he isn't going to play 4-2-4 against Brazil, if that's what you're asking. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I think he he's going to have to be a pragmatist, isn't he? The, the difference now is that he's going to have, by most of the time anyway, his best team available to him. Um, and that isn't even a historical reference to the fact that we used to struggle to call up players. It is yeah. just that... Um, you know, as an under-21 manager, he had to deal with the fact that certain people weren't going to be available to him. The senior side won't have that same problem. So I guess that might allow him to have a bit more continuity than what he did have. Um, but he isn't afraid to change systems to suit um, the opponents. And we saw that throughout the tournament. I think what he quite liked is sides that were versatile and able to change to suit the needs, not just of who they were playing against, but the time and the phase and the match that they were in. So, you know, what might look like a 3-5-2 on paper could become a 5-3-2 should that be the need. Equally, sides that maybe looked a bit more reserved as a 4-5-1 quickly became 4-3-3s once they started to get the front foot in the game and get on the ball more. Okay. And having the, I guess, the, the really pacey players, because that's something I feel like we've lacked for a long time. And then all of a sudden we started to see flare players coming through all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and having that... Luxury, it's always a luxury to a manager if you've got someone that's prepared to take somebody on. And having those um, fearless young players bombing down the wing allows you to maybe set them up initially as a left and right winger, but then say, look, it might be a left and right forward scenario here if we can uh, build a bit of momentum as the game goes on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, I guess one of the things, um, one of the concerns that some Northern Ireland fans may have uh, about the appointment of Ian Barclough is this current campaign with the under-21s, which has been maybe slightly disappointed, maybe a little bit of after the Lord Mayor's show, um, after the last campaign. I mean, we've played five, um, drawn three and lost two, including quite a disappointing uh, nil-nil draw, I think, at home to Malta. Um, I guess what I want to know is, do you, for you, is that just down to Ian Barclough being the victim of his own success? As you said, he had such success in the last campaign that all of those players have been called up and he's been left a bit bare. Possibly. I mean, the the two defeats were against uh, the two top teams in the group as well, you know, Denmark and Romania. And sometimes I think as football fans, we get a bit, um, what would be the right word? We, we sort of look at it and go, well, it's only Romania. But, um, well, that isn't really reflective of the under-21 scene. Romania have a, a pretty decent youth setup. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're seeing... Uh, Romania, this is this is the next wave, if you like, so you can't judge them on your preconceived ideas of, of where the current national side are. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at the group as it is, it's a tricky enough one. The Malta results, the, the disappointing factor, obviously, um, it, it's a game that you would expect to win. But um, I, I, just, I think if you look at the squad, it just doesn't quite have maybe the same 
uh, glow to it as um, the previous ones and maybe slightly having to rebuild um, with, I think, what was it, 11 or so players from the under-21 setup that he's had have gone through. And it isn't to say that he doesn't still have good players at his disposal. I mean, in, in the Malta game, for example, he, he still had Parkhouse. Um, equally, you know, you had some Irish league names in there. That, like I said, Kofi Balmer was playing and that, he's a very good young player. So that's not to take away from him. That's clearly, you know, his progression as well, that he's going to get games. But when you look in the team and you go, well, who's playing instead of Gavin White? Who's playing instead of Paul Smith? Who's playing instead of Liam Donnelly? It's understandable if you start to take those types of names out of a side that initially they're going to find it hard until other players in their own progression start to step up and mature and develop and you know improve as well, which I'm sure they will do. But um, I think the, the game against Malta, which was, um, I think it was the first match in, in that campaign, it was just a case of they couldn't hit the net. Okay. Yeah, and I guess that's something we've uh, we've got a bit used to seeing with the uh, the senior squad as well. The problems up front. And that's something that obviously he will have um, he'll have been used to to dealing with with the under twenty ones. I mean, I think across the board we have a bit of a problem uh, with the strikers. Even though obviously Shane Lavery is coming through, and we can hope that he's uh, he's going to be a success for us in the future. Um, just to, to finish up, Michael, um, like, is there any sort of players in the under twenty ones right now? I mean, I know that a lot of them have been called up and like Mark Sykes was called up to the squad um, but then obviously the games were postponed and stuff like that. But who do you expect to see um, over the next, well, I think Ian Barclough's got an 18-month contract, over the, the next couple of years, is there any under-21 players you can definitely see that can, you know, for sure make that step up and become and establish themselves in our squad or even start an 11? It's a, a difficult one to know, really, um, in terms of who can who can really forged their way in. I mean, Burns is still in that under-21 side. Um, so is Parkhouse. Albraith is the one that we're all looking at, isn't he? Um, yeah. Obviously, with the fact that he's at Manchester United. But um, what, what I kind of liked is the the matches sometimes felt a little bit unpredictable under Ian Barclough because he would he would have his own ideas to who, which player, and I suppose all managers do, which player was going to give me that little extra... Uh, edge over the other team and it wouldn't always necessarily be the inverted commas best player it's just who who was going to be the the key factor to come in and maybe make a difference and allow a system change or something like that so um he's going to be spoiled for choice now so i think that will really be the test of him how inclined will he be to be loyal to um the players that he's previously managed some of the under 21s how many of the people that are still in that uh, setup would he look at to bring through and how reliant is he going to be on the older more established names which are going to be obviously important to him in the initial yeah. time um, so really the answer is who knows um, this is really where we're going to very quickly see what type of Northern Ireland manager we're getting um, it's a it's a huge challenge for him I think you know he had varying degrees of success or difficulty depending on which club side you look at um he's a he's a very decent guy he's a very popular guy you know easy to talk to i think the players are going to enjoy playing under him um and he's going to certainly not struggle to get the best out of um the younger lads i'm sure the senior guys are going to take to him very quickly as well and he's worked closely with michael o'neill so there's there's the hope obviously with all of us that it's going to be um sort of a natural fit 
as opposed to somebody coming in and, and saying, no, do you know what? I don't like the look of this. Let's, you know, two banks of five and hoof the ball up and hope that we we'll score one. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're going to get negative football from Ian Barraclough. Um, I don't think he's going to be afraid of opponents. And um, he can point to that one in Spain as the key sign of that. I mean, all of those players have said, he told us we were going to win. I mean, I think they laughed at him. I don't think they really did. But, <laughs> but he managed yeah. to pull it off. No, exactly. So yeah. um, it's there's certainly encouraging signs. But for all Northern Ireland fans listening to this, what I would say is just be patient. Um, and and w- because we have to, we can't just expect this to be copy and paste. Michael O'Neill, Mark too. It's all brilliant. Michael O'Neill got off to a horrendous start as Northern Ireland manager and plenty of people were calling for his head. And probably plenty of people now, you know, eating humble pie and going, well, what did we know? Turns out he was, you know, the greatest manager of our, our lifetime um, as a Northern Ireland supporter. So um, who knows? Ian Barclough might never be able to reach that standard because Michael O'Neill raised the bar so high. But we need to give him a bit of time. And I think um, the fact that they're very high pressure games he's coming into, um, you know, uh, it's not ideal for him. But uh, football is sink or swim. And uh, that's the life of a manager. Absolutely. Yep. No, thank you very much, Michael, for coming on there. Really interesting chat. Appreciate that. Thank you. No, fantastic talking to you and um, best of luck with the podcast. Thank you very much. Cheers. Okay. Massive, massive thanks to Michael Clark and Keith O'Dwyer for coming on at very, very short notice there. I only messaged those two guys uh, a day or two before this podcast. Um, I was keen to obviously get this one out while they to sort of strike while the iron's hot, while Barclough's just been appointed. So, you know, big thanks to those two for coming on and, um, you know, absolutely fantastic interviews. So spot on there. Uh, look, Deblock, you have been uh, having a wee look at some of the comments on our Facebook page that we said we we're going to read out. Do you want to read a few out and we can react to some of them just to finish this podcast off? Yeah, obviously you brought some official news to everyone on the Facebook page, as you always do. You're on you're on the ball with that every time. So fair play to you. Um, you. I've got an interesting comment from Jack Strahan um, here. Um, he's, he said that he's delighted with the appointment. Um, you know, appointing under-21 manager seems to have worked out well for England. So he's kind of drawn the the parallels between Gareth Southgate and uh, Ian Barraclough. Um, and this idea was something I thought we should maybe go into in the podcast. I mean, what what do you think about the idea of appointing someone who's under 21s? Well, you know, England have maybe proven that someone who knows the youth, someone who knows the setup, this can work quite well. You know, obviously Southgate's brought a lot of players through in that England setup. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the thing that a lot of people forget, because obviously England did have that incredible World Cup campaign um, and did well in the Nations League as well, won their Nations League group last time. Um, because Strachan, or uh, sorry, not Strachan, uh, Southgate has been uh, has been so <laughs> successful. <laughs> Getting mixed up with Scotland there, because uh, he's, he's been so successful with England. You forget, like at the time, Gareth Southgate, like wasn't seen as a good manager. Would never have been uh, in the running for that England job if he wasn't in the under twenty ones. And I think it was was it Sam Allardyce who got who got sacked after that scandal after the yeah. game. And yeah. Southgate was sort of like a placeholder for a while. And, and because he was successful, he was eventually offered that job. But, you know, Gareth Southgate didn't do an absolutely incredible job with the under-21s like Ian Barraclough's done. So to see him make that progression, like, I think, you know, Ian Barraclough has, well, obviously, is it, this is relative, you know, because Southgate's managed at a higher level and has managed Premier League and stuff like that. And Ian yeah. Barraclough has managed in the League of Ireland. So this is all relative to scale. But in terms of their calibre, Ian, Ian Barraclough's actually has a lot more calibre to take the Northern Ireland job than Gareth Southgate didn't take the England job so I, I just think that's really encouraging you know, the yeah. success Southgate's had and as you say you know, he's brought through a lot of players um, I know Sterling was, was already sort of playing for England but he's um, 
and he's playing very well for his clubs, but he's nurtured him internationally as well. Um, Jaden Sancho, I mean, there's so many players from the under-21s that uh, Southgate has successfully brought through and used the Nations League to bring those players through as well. So maybe that's something uh, Barraclough can you know, use as, as, a, as a barometer of success. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's no denying that England have kind of looked to the future with that appointment and they've looked to the future of their squad and also the manager. I mean, Southgate's a younger manager as well. You know, he came through and he knows these players. And I think it's it's clear that it does have an impact on the side. You know, when these young guys know that the guy who's coming in has faith in them, has trust in them, they, it's their their game elevates. It's not just like he knows them. For, that's, all, that's it. Like their game genuinely would elevate knowing that this guy knows what they can do in the pitch, knows what they can do in training. And he just has a lot of faith in him. So I think Barclough will come in and, and relax a lot of these players. And in a good way, not in, you know, relax them in a the sense that, you know, they're going to just kind of sit back and not do too much. But yeah. I think it's going to relax them in a the sense that, you know, they, they can feel comfortable with who's in charge. Um, in ter- You know, they know what, he, he knows what they can do and they can just, you know, give him more evidence of, of, of how good they are. So I think that's a great that's a great comment from Jack on that one. Yeah. Um, another interesting one was um, was Lee Hamilton. He, he said about the backroom staff, you know, it'll be interesting to see who the, who Ian brings in as his backroom staff. Now, will he bring in outside staff he's mentioned or under-21 staff or keep the current state? Um, and who will also replace him at under-21 level? I mean, that'll be interesting to see what the IFA do in that regard. I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think they'll look within or do you, do you think they'll keep some of the guys there? Was Yeah, well, well something interesting actually is a, 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 the, the reason a lot of people wanted Robinson over Barclough, and we have to make this clear, you know, but, uh, Robinson was primarily the fans' choice. As much as people are sort of happy enough with Barclough, people would have preferred Stephen Robinson on the whole. Um, And one of the reasons for that, I saw a lot of people commenting, was that Barclough's done such a good job with the under-21s, bringing those players through, that just leave him where he is, you know what I mean? So in terms of of a way you can sort of equalise that and stabilise the the under-21s, continuing that trajectory and the the national team, I'd say um, Ian Barclough would... uh, I think it would be a good idea just to maybe leave the backroom staff as much as he can, as it is. Um, I mean, you know, we've we've talked in this podcast before about how much you know work the coaches do, um, and I think you know, in the 2016 Euro qualifying campaign, you, know, you were saying about Stephen Robinson how he took a lot of that training on himself. And yeah. I think you know, just to, just for continuity, we always mention this. I sound like a broken record, but continuity. Maybe just leave things where they are. Yes, you you know, bring in one or two. Um, people who are close to you and understand you. Um, but also, uh, you know, equivalently, as importantly as that, you know, keep the under-21 staff where they are. Um, yeah. You know, because they've done such good work there. And you just don't want to upset the apple cart too much. We've always talked about continuity. Um, and I would be in favour of him, you know, um, keeping things as they are. But as I say, you know, if Ian Barclough's going to gonna do it, I want him to do it, I want him to do it his way. And if, if he wants to bring in his own staff, then... You know, if he's gonna fail, I'd rather he, you know, he, he failed doing things his own way. So yeah, um, I mean, well, Michael had a lot of trust in his backroom staff, didn't he? I mean, it was I think Austin McPhee, Jimmy Nickel, these guys, and as far as I'm aware, they're still involved in the setup, aren't they? They're still here. So yeah, I believe so. I believe so. Yeah. So I mean, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens to those guys. I mean, they were they were kind of alongside Michael for basically the whole journey. So um, yeah, I think just about it's about getting a stable backroom staff, you know, people that he can trust and just keep them there the long term. I think that's. It'll be a similar approach to what Michael had with it, and Ian may end up just keeping some of Michael's backroom staff there. You never know; you really don't, because they probably all know each other quite well. To be honest with you, yeah. And as to say, we don't we don't really know sort of what goes on in the background. All we see is you know what what's on the pitch. We don't see what goes on the training ground as well. So I think I just yeah. trust I just trust Barclough to make make the right decision on that one. But yeah, as I say, that I can see that I can see certainly see the benefits to the continuity of keeping people where they are. 
Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, there's another comment here then. Um, we'll do a couple more, maybe. Yeah, um, a couple more sounds Stuart good. Yeah. Ely, um, who, he's obviously a regular, so Stuart, thanks again for the, uh, another comment there. Um, he's talking about how, you know, Barclough seems to have these same man management skills as O'Neill. You know, and I think that's something we touched on briefly um, in, you know, the previous podcast and even this one. Um, the Barclough seems to have this, this way of, of looking at his squad that just seems quite reminiscent of Michael. And Michael was always, you know, very, you know, came across really well in interviews, came across really well just in general um, from all the people who had met him and, and spoken to him, you know, um, fans included. And I think, you know, from even the Barclough interview we saw, you know, when the, when his appointment was announced on the Northern Ireland Facebook page and everything, he just comes across really well. And I, I do think that there is an argument there that he has the same kind of man management skills as O'Neill. And I think that can only bode well, surely, for this squad. Yeah, 100% agree. Uh, and in the two interviews I've done uh, before this, obviously you haven't had the, the benefit of, of having listened to those yet because we pretty much put this together quite quickly this morning. But uh, both those guys were saying, Michael Clark and Keith O'Dwyer, both talking about the man management skills of uh, Ian Barraclough. And uh, obviously, well, I'm, I'm not going to go over it again because the, the listeners will have heard this, but there were certain yeah. sort of mercurial players and um, you know big egos where Ian Barraclough was able to put the arm around them, settle them down and um, and really get them get them playing for the best of their ability for him. And I think that's you know, the parallels you draw between that and Michael O'Neill are obviously the Kyle Lafferty situation. Um, he's talked at length before about, you know, after that uh, 2014 World Cup qualifying campaign where yeah. you know, Kyle Lafferty was really, you know, he really let us down. He wasn't turning up to squads, you know, whether, whether that was injury or otherwise. Um, he got sent off in that game against Portugal, which ultimately, you know, cost us any chance of getting back into that game. And, you know, Michael O'Neill, you know, could have could have thrown him out, could have said, right, can't be bothered with this. You know, you're you're a, you're too much of a of a burden on the squads um, on the attitude. But, you know, O'Neill put the arm around him, recognised Lafferty had talent, recognised that he could be an incredible player for us. And, you know, the the upside of that was Kai Lafferty fired us to the Euros ultimately. So, you know, yeah, there definitely are parallels between Barraclough and, and, and O'Neill. And I think it's just that sort of philosophy that's going right the way through. Uh, the IFA and, com- and coming up through the the ranks as well with the coaching, it just everyone seems to be pulling in the right direction, uh, and that's you know that's encouraging because that just sets the basis for Barclough to to do his thing and hopefully he's successful. Yeah, no, definitely. And look, I mean, you 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 talk to Keith about it. You know, if the people close to Ian say it, then I'm going to trust them. You know, I, mm-hmm. I obviously we don't know much about the guy. You know, we just know kind of from a surface level. So. I think if, if those close to him are saying that, you just got to trust them. And finally, mm-hmm. just to end the kind of comment section, um, the likes of Stuart Agnew, Stephen Miskelly have been saying things about, you know, what additions we see the senior squad. And Stuart maybe brought up bringing back someone like Oliver Norwood. Now, mm-hmm. Norwood has been, I mean, you would just say absolutely fantastic for Sheffield United, to be fair. Yeah. And, and yeah. you've had to watch him play so well. But these guys in the Premier League with kind of, you know, through, through gritted teeth a bit because... You know, you'd kind of hope he would do he would do that for us in the squad. And obviously, there was talk about a fallout between Michael and him. I mean, is that someone you can maybe bring back as well into the squad? You know, for a bit of an advantage for us. But well, yeah. I mean, obviously, there there have been rumours of a fallout. Um, nothing overly substantial, so I'm not sure how much there is really to that. Essentially, yeah. um, it's it's a tough one. You know, if if there was a fallout, then yeah, there would have been a sort of cover story to it. There, it would have been covered up because it looks bad. You know, the IFA or Norwood and O'Neill are in their dirty laundry in public, essentially. But you know, if if you know if it if it was something like that and it was to do with a manager and it was a personal thing for Norwood, then you know definitely I'd, I'd be looking to bring that guy back. We just can't be turning down Premier League quality. You know, in the position we have with small pool, with small resources, we're a small country overall. Um, yeah. You know, I I'm 
what Oliver Norwood did doesn't sit overly well with me at all. Um, we brought him through our under twenty ones. We gave him games for the senior team, and let's let's be clear about this. You know, Oliver Norwood. We we watch him in the Premier League playing well now, and I completely echo what you said. He's been really good for Sheffield this season. It does hurt me to see him, you know, perform at that level and how he could you know, be on our side doing that. But you know, Oliver Norwood over the years wasn't a standout player for Northern Ireland um, all the time. He played well in the Euros. Um, had good games for us, but he, you know this guy wasn't Steve Davis. He wasn't Johnny Evans. He wasn't putting in these consistent uh, Kyle yeah. Lafferty in that in that campaign. He wasn't putting in these consistent performances. And I really think we gave him the platform to move on and, and kick on in his career at 28 to play in the Premier League. Now let's not forget, Brighton got relegated, uh, sold him back. Or sorry, Brighton got promoted with him in the side, sold yeah. him back down to the Championship. Fulham got promoted with him in the side, sold him back down to the Championship. Yeah, uh, there was a. I think, I, there was, that, I think there was another team who did it, you yeah, know, so yeah. so these these club teams, you know, uh, threw him off at the, at the first possible opportunity. You know, they aren't stuck with him. You know, given the platform to playing games against, uh, you know, Germany at the Euros, Ukraine, where he got that assist, really given the platform to do that and stuck with him. Um, and you, you, we'll have to be balanced here. Fair play to Oli. You know, he didn't uh, up until those two first games of the campaign. Oli made himself available for every squad when some yeah. players didn't. So we have yeah. to be balanced about this, but yeah, basically I'm rambling, but you know, essentially what I want to say is it doesn't sit well with me what he's done. Would I forgive him if we have a Premier League player playing in the midfield? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think just to conclude that, it'll be interesting to see just in general what Ian does with the side, how he mixes his youth, how he mixes um, some of the more senior players, you know, if there's anyone he brings back into the side that's kind of not, that's kind of fallen out of favour with the side. Just, it'll be his approach and we'll have to look and see. But that's everything for the comments. I think you wanted to give David a shout out, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I did uh, I did a wee message in between the, the interviews with Keith and Michael there, um, sort of explaining what David's doing. And I sort of say, you know, obviously some people listen to this podcast while driving or if they're out for a walk or out for a run or whatever and can't exactly stop it and um, and, and donate or do it, do whatever they want to do. So just put a wee reminder at the end, just go back and listen to that. And um, obviously I'm more than happy to help out if people can't find the link or, I'll, you know, I'll put all that in the bio and on the social media as well. So uh, everyone will be able to see that, but you know, absolutely fantastic work he's doing. I mean, you saw it as well. It's just yeah, brilliant, it's re really impressive. Yeah, fair play, perfect. Okay, happy enough to wrap that up there then. That's great. Yeah, thanks again, everyone, for the comments, and it was great to kind of dive into that. And we're just excited for the uh, the future with with Ian Barcliffe, definitely. Spot on. Yeah. So give the Facebook page a like. Give the Twitter. We're on there. It's at Spirit of Twenty Sixteen Pod. Uh, always putting some coverage and news up there. And uh, just sort of to wrap this up, I guess you know, I know a lot of people. For a lot of people, Ian Barraclough wasn't their, their first choice for the manager. But, you know, he's here now. He's here for 18 months. Let's get behind him. I think everyone is going to do that. We've always done that with managers. Um, and, you know, let's just see what the future brings. We've got a lot of exciting games coming up. We've got Nations League. We've got uh, we've got these playoffs, which, you know, could we could make history. We could be in our only, or, well, only our second tournament in 34, 36 years. So, you know, we're, we're only two games away from that. And, uh Let's create that feel-good factor and make Ian feel as, as welcome as possible in those first games if there are fans in the stadium. So, yeah, thank you very much, Nib, for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Welcome. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.